0: Hello and welcome to the 11th episode in our series of commercial litigation update podcasts. I'm Anna Prataldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Presenting this podcast with me are Maura McIntosh, who's a professional support consultant in the litigation team, and Amel Fengor, who is a senior associate in the disputes team. In this edition, Maura will outline some recent cases on witness evidence and relief from sanctions and give a very brief update on the disclosure pilot. Then I'll cover some decisions on jurisdiction and pleading foreign law, including an important Supreme Court decision. And finally, Amel will look at the Supreme Court's recent decision in Lloyd and Google, which has significant implications for data class actions. So I'll hand over to Maura to kick us off. Thanks, Anna. Since our
1: last podcast, there have been a couple of High Court decisions on the new requirements for the preparation of trial witness statements under Practice Direction 57 AC, which applies to statements signed since the 1st of April in the Business and Property Courts. The first is a decision of Mrs Justice O'Farrell in Mansion Place and Fox Industrial Services. And the second is, of his honour, Judge Stephen Davies in Blue Manchester and Bugaloo Technic, both coincidentally in the Technology and Construction Court. Now, in both cases, the court required certain passages to be redrafted or deleted from the witness statements where they failed to comply with the rules, in particular by arguing the case or including irrelevant or unnecessary commentary or quotations from documents. One of the key points that comes out from the decisions is that the courts are quite prepared to require amendments or redactions to witness statements if they include long passages that summarise or recite from documents where the witness has no relevant evidence to add. In Blue Manchester, the judge commented that lawyers need to be, as he put it, prized away from the comfort blanket of having a witness confirm a threat of correspondence for fear that it might otherwise disappear into the ether or be ruled inadmissible at trial when of course that won't be the case the documents can be adduced in evidence without being referred to in a witness statement and submissions and argument can be made by reference to them and that's the approach that the courts will now expect parties to adopt in each case it seems the applications were heard over a full day and in each case the court dealt with the application in very great detail but expressed concerns about the potential for such disputes to lead to time-consuming and costly satellite litigation. So in Blue Manchester, the judge gave a warning against what he said was indulging in unnecessary trench warfare, which would lead to parties being criticised and penalised in costs, although I should say he wasn't actually characterising the applications in that case um, in those terms. He said he hoped as the PD becomes more familiar and the principles become clearer that these sorts of heavily contested application will be the exception rather than the norm. But I expect we may still have some way to go in parties testing the requirements before the courts before it's all so clear that these disputes don't arise or or, or rarely do so anyway. Moving on to relief from sanctions, in the last episode of this podcast I spoke about Jala and Shell, which involved some 28,000 claims relating to an oil spill off the coast of Nigeria. I spoke in particular about the Court of Appeals' decision striking out the representative element of the claim seeking an order for remediation of the land said to be affected by the oil spill. And Amel will say more in a little while about representative actions, particularly in light of the uh, Supreme Court's recent decision in Lloyd and Google. But I mentioned also that there was a a separate high court action being brought um, in Jala and Shell by the 28,000 claimants individually for damages alleged to be suffered as a result of the oil spill. And and that action was still ongoing. But now that element has also been brought to an end as a result of a further court of appeal decision. Uh, Essentially, the court refused to allow the claimants more time to serve date of damage pleadings. Explaining when the individual claimants' causes of action accrued. This was to try to get around the difficulty that the claims were brought more than six years after the oil spill, and so the claimants were left arguing that the spill didn't reach at least some of their properties until much later, and therefore at least some of the claims were not statute barred. But the problem was that the claimants only applied for an extension of time to serve those pleadings on the day of the deadline, and the court refused to extend time, which meant that these 28,000 claims now cannot proceed. The interesting procedural point is that the Court of Appeal essentially applied the strict approach for applications for relief from sanctions imposed for a breach of a rule or court order, even though the application was made just before the deadline expired, so there was no breach at the time of the application. Now, that strict approach has previously been applied by analogy where an application was made late, uh, seeking a retrospective extension of time after a deadline had expired. But I don't think I've previously seen it applied where an application was made in time. So I think this is perhaps a slight um, tightening of of approach there. Finally, for me, uh, just to mention that the amendments to the disclosure pilot, which I discussed in our last episode of this podcast, have now come into force uh, from the beginning of November. The timing was uh, somewhat uncertain at the time of recording the last episode, but these changes have have now taken effect. Um, I won't repeat the detail, but essentially they streamline some of the procedures and also introduce greater flexibility for multi-party cases, as well as a new separate regime for less complex claims of typically less than £500,000.
0: Thanks, Maura. So turning to jurisdiction... The first case I'll cover is AIG and John Wood Group, in which the High Court interpreted a clause which stated that the commercial court shall have jurisdiction in respect of any dispute under an insurance policy as an exclusive jurisdiction clause, even though the word exclusive wasn't used. Similar decisions have been reached in other cases and so in general the position seems to be that the English court is likely to find that a jurisdiction clause is exclusive unless it's explicitly stated to be non-exclusive, particularly if there is also a choice of English law. Although of course the, the courts will apply normal principles of contractual interpretation and so each case will turn on the specific wording of the clause and the relevant factual matrix. So, to avoid uncertainty and disputes at a later stage, it's best to use clear words, so stating in particular whether the court's jurisdiction is exclusive or non-exclusive. The second case, PJSC Bank and Chicago, is about when a defendant will be found to have submitted to the English court's jurisdiction so that it can no longer bring a jurisdiction challenge. The High Court found that the defendant hadn't submitted to the jurisdiction by uh, applying to strike out the claim against him at the same time as challenging jurisdiction. The court considered two tests set out in the authorities to determine whether a defendant has submitted. First, whether there's been wholly unequivocal conduct demonstrating an intention to have the case tried in this jurisdiction. And second, whether there has been conduct that is only necessary or only useful if the defendant's objection to the jurisdiction has been waived. The court said these aren't in fact different tests. The former is just a more modern and succinct statement of the latter. On the facts, The court held that the test was not met, where the defendant applied to strike out at the same time as challenging jurisdiction. But in practice, despite this decision and some other recent cases where the court has taken quite a generous view as to what conduct amounted to a submission to the jurisdiction, it's generally best to make sure there's no room for doubt. So in particular, it may be wise to leave a strikeout application until after the jurisdiction challenge has been determined, if it's still necessary, of course, at that point, or at the very least, state expressly in the application notice that the application is without prejudice to the jurisdiction challenge. My last case, but by no means least in terms of importance, is the Supreme Court's decision in Brownlee. In this decision, in the context of a personal injury case, the Supreme Court has finally settled the question of whether a claimant needs to have suffered direct damage in England and Wales uh, to fall within the gateway for serving a tort claim on a defendant out of the jurisdiction in circumstances where the act which caused the damage was committed elsewhere. In contrast to the position under the Brussels regime, which of course used to apply to claims involving EU defendants and still does for claims issued before the end of last year, the answer is that direct damage is not essential. It's enough that the claimant suffered actionable harm in this jurisdiction, whether direct or indirect. But the court noted that there is an important difference between a case involving physical damage, such as Brownlee, and a case involving the financial consequences of a wholly economic tort. In the latter sort of case, it said the mere fact that the claimant had suffered some economic loss, uh, however remote where they were based, wouldn't be a satisfactory basis for the exercise of jurisdiction, but this wasn't such a case. So I think that leaves considerable scope for argument as to what damage may be sufficient to fall within the tort gateway in cases where the damage is entirely economic. In any case, of course, the grant of permission to serve out will be subject to the claimant satisfying the court that there is a real issue to be tried and that the English court is the appropriate forum for the claim to be heard. So those are significant controlling factors on when the English court will accept jurisdiction over a claim with perhaps little connection to England even if indirect damage is good enough to come within the tort gateway. So that's only the first step. In Brownlee, the court also provided guidance on pleading and proving foreign law. The most important point here is that where foreign law is pleaded as being applicable to a claim but no detail is provided as to the content of that law, the court may effectively apply English law if it is reasonable to expect that the foreign law is likely to be materially similar to English law on that issue. But given the uncertainty over when that criterion will be met, the safest course is, is to obtain foreign law advice and expressly plead the content of the relevant foreign law. Uh, well, that's it from me, so I'll hand over now to Amel. Thanks,
2: Anna. So I'm going to speak about the Supreme Court's decision in Lloyd and Google in which the court essentially closed off the potential floodgates for class actions seeking compensation for loss of control of personal data on behalf of very large numbers of individuals without first identifying them. Although the decision hasn't closed the door completely, as I'll come to. So in this case, Mr Lloyd sought to bring a claim using the representative action procedure under CPR 19.6 and this was on behalf of a class of more than four million UK resident iPhone users. The allegations were that some of their internet activity via an internet browser was secretly tracked by the defendant and used for commercial purposes in 2011, 2012. You may have heard this referred to as the Safari workaround. So to try to bring the claim within the strict same interest requirement for representative actions under CPR 19.6, The claimant had to disavow any reliance on the individual circumstances of class members instead what they did was try to seek damages as a standard tariff for each class member to compensate for loss of control over their personal data in the court of appeal they were successful the court found that damages were in principle capable of being awarded for loss of control of data even where there was no pecuniary loss and no distress And that since any damages would be reduced to the lowest common denominator, the represented parties did have the same interest in the relevant sense. However, the Supreme Court allowed Google's appeal and held that establishing loss of control of data wasn't sufficient, i.e. it's not enough to show that there's been a breach. The claimants had to have suffered either material damage, such as financial loss or mental distress. So individual circumstances couldn't be ignored when bringing this type of claim. That meant the attempt to bring an action for compensation on behalf of all those whose data was processed without reliance on any class members, individual circumstances and proof of damage was was doomed to fail. It's worth noting, however, that the case was brought under the Data Protection Act 1998, which has since been replaced by the GDPR and the Data Protection Act 2018. And in contrast to the 1998 Act, the GDPR refers to compensation being available for non-material damage and specifically refers to loss of control over personal data as an example of possible damage resulting from a personal data breach. So this language was not considered by the Supreme Court because it wasn't relevant to a case brought under the DPA 1998. And so claimants could seek to argue in future that these claims are possible under the GDPR even though they weren't available under the 1998 Act. The Supreme Court decision also leaves a couple of potential routes for bringing damages claims using the representative action procedure, whether in data claims or other types of action. First, a representative action can be used where the damages can be calculated for the whole class either because each class member suffered the same loss, for example, they were overcharged the same amount, or because the loss can be calculated on a global basis for the whole class, using what the court described as a top-down approach. Second, it might be possible to bring class actions using a bifurcated process in which the representative action procedure is used to determine the common issues, such as whether there's been an actionable breach, leaving any individual issues such as quantum to be dealt with subsequently. And this bifurcated approach could in effect introduce a halfway house between a fully opt out claim and an opt-in procedure such as the group litigation order in which individual claimants would only have to bring claims individually or in appropriate groups once the common issues had been determined And of course, at that point, individual claimants might be more willing to join in the litigation than at the earlier stage where liability is still up for grabs. The Supreme Court suggested that the present case, Lloyd and Google, could have been run using this bifurcated approach, but that it presumably wouldn't have been attractive because the first representative stage wouldn't generate any financial return for the claimant's funder. There just would have been a finding on liability. And the subsequent individual damages claims wouldn't be economically viable so the important question for claimants and their funders will be whether there are economically viable ways for damages claims to be brought on a bifurcated basis whether in the data space or in other sorts of actions it's a case of seeing how this develops over time
0: thank you amel Amora, and, and to all of you for listening that brings us to the end of today's podcast We'll be back with another update in a couple of months.